Amen. Thank you, Callie. What's up, guys? How are we doing? Wow. That was a lot warmer than I was expecting, I'm not going to lie. Um, you guys are probably wondering who I am, uh, if we haven't met. My name is Garrett. Um, yeah, I uh, don't work here for SALT, but I do work for SALT. I work for SALT up in Ames, actually, at Iowa State. Um, I'm on my second year staff there, and uh, Joe called me up and was like, hey, you want to preach at Summer Salt? And I was like, I would love to. Um, so I'm excited to be here with you guys um, and uh, kind of preach the word to you all. A little bit about myself before I get into the word. Um, I'm from Grimes, actually, just down the road. Is anyone else here from Grimes? No? Cool. All right. My family. Um, yeah, thanks, guys. Um, yeah, they, they love me. Um, no, so I'm from Grimes. I grew up, um, but I actually came to Ames as a freshman um, at Iowa State. But here's a, a tidbit, a little bit about me. A lot of people think I, you know, if you work in Ames, I've been there for five years, whatever. Um, a lot of people think I graduated from there. But actually, after my freshman year, I transferred to DMACC, and I got my degree. So I'm a bear. I'm a bear, baby, all the way. Till I die. I'm a bear till I die. So even though I work in Ames, I, uh, I think about you guys. You guys have a, push, a special place in my heart. Um, yeah, I'm a bear till I die. So, um, yeah, I love, I love music. I love sports, specifically football and soccer. Um, and I love movies. I love, love movies. Uh, if you guys, I, I don't know if you guys are in the, in the world of like cinema, but I love the way how movies are filmed, the way that the actors prepare. Um, I just think they're so cool. One, one specific genre of movies that I don't think gets enough credit is uh, like Disney princess movies. They're so good. There's, amen. They're so good. Like, you don't, you don't need to sit around and talk about it for, like, hours. And, like, Inception, you know, you would sit back and, like, talk till 3 a.m. with the boys about it. But, like, you watch a movie like Pocahontas, and you're like, that was just so good. Um, it's just, like, refreshing, and it's relaxing. And I don't think they get enough credit. Uh, so that begs the question, Ankeny Salt, what is the best Disney princess movie? What do you guys think? Tangled? Is that it? Is that it? Mulan? Okay, Aladdin. See, I, I hesitate to say that's a Disney princess movie because it's Aladdin's in the name. I don't know. I like I like Jasmine though; she's great. Uh, what, do we have any other ones? Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, that's classic. Beauty and the Beast is a classic. Love it. Uh, actually, there there is a there is a right answer. Uh, it is Mulan. Uh, Mulan is the right answer uh, for many reasons. It's old enough. It's old enough to be nostalgic. But it's also like the, the theme in the movie is actually really impactful. It's got the right amount of action um, and it's got the right amount of humor. Eddie Murphy is the dragon, the side character. Like, you don't get better than that. Um, it's really good. If you haven't seen the movie, I encourage you to watch it. I'm literally going to spoil the whole movie for you today. So just a heads up. Um, basically, Mulan is the, an only child of a Chinese family. Um, she you know, grows up, um, and she has her mom and her dad. I think her grandma is like the other crazy character. Um, and the, China's at war, and when the movie starts, and so China, the army is selecting people for service, and they need one male from every family to fight in, uh, in the war. But the problem with Mulan and her family is they only have, the dad is the only male in the family, and he's like super old, super weak, and injured. He's already served in the military. So if he were to get drafted, um, in which he was going to, uh, he would most likely be killed on the front lines. And so that presents a problem for the families, like they only have their dad to give. On top of that, Milan recently was told by someone that she would never bring honor to her family. Like, ouch. 
Um, honor is like a big deal, especially in Chinese and, and Asian cultures. And so for someone to say that, it was like, you just ruined my entire life. Um, so Milan, where the story really begins, is out of a deep, um, out of a deep place of like un- not understanding her identity and of guilt and shame. She wants to prove herself and prove her identity. So she then takes her father's place and goes into the military to fight. Um, so she runs away from home and in order to prove her worth and her, her identity. Yes, Mulan is a Disney princess movie, but I think it begs an important question for all of us today here at SALT. How often do we run away to prove our worth? For those in the room who are believers, how long have we been trying to earn God's approval? Like, when, how long of us have we forgotten or misunderstood our identity and have run away to try and earn it somewhere else? For those of you who don't know Jesus, my question to you is, who do you go to for approval? Where are you going? Where are you going to get filled up? And is that, is that satisfying? Or is, is the hole a little bit bigger every time you go back? These are all really deep questions, and I think Paul, the writer of Galatians, in which we're doing a series on, um, I think he, he has an argument for the church in Galatia more specifically that they didn't understand their identity in Christ completely. And my argument today and the reason why I'm standing here before you is to talk about Galatians 4 specifically and argue that actually us today in this room, we don't fully grasp our identity in Jesus either. Um, so yeah, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd love it if you flip to Galatians 4 with me. Um, that's where we'll be the whole time. Um, we're going to read the first nine verses. I think that there's a lot that Paul says in Galatians 4. There's some crazy stuff going on in there, but I think it's mostly encapsulated in the first nine verses. Um, so we'll start there. Um, while you guys are flipping there, um, I'm just going to kind of set the scene. So if you guys have been here, you kind of have a, a somewhat of an idea. If you haven't, or if this is your first time here, I'm going to kind of give you a rundown. Um, Paul is writing uh, this letter in the Bible. He's writing it to a church in Galatia, to the Christians there. Basically, what's happening is they were new believers, but then these false teachers came along, and they started to add rules to becoming a Christian. Um, They started to add rules to the gospel and for salvation. And so Paul is, like, pretty ticked off, and so he's trying to to write this letter to to reestablish the truth. And um, so that's what we've gone through the past three weeks. We've gone through Galatians 1 through 3. In week one, Joe, he talked about how there's only one gospel. He went through, like, the four false gospels, he did a beautiful job of presenting that and how Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Week two, Luke actually talked about justification and how they're not by works, but by faith. And uh, last week, week three, John talked about how the law that the old covenant was a part of, the, the rules that they were all following before Jesus came, was actually powerless to save anyone. And that the only way that someone can be saved is through faith. Um, and that was for everybody. That was like the big theme, was like the, the inclusivity exclusion. It's like, you can't get into heaven unless you believe in Jesus, but believing in Jesus is for everybody. So now we're in Galatians 4. That's where we're at tonight. Paul's argument is, is one of identity. So if you'll start with me, um, we're going to start in verse 1 in chapter 4. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to the things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather you have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Paul kind of covers a lot of ground here, but my main point um, for you note takers is we were once enslaved. If we look back at verses one through three, and I'll read them again, I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, that though he's the owner of everything, instead he is under the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were under slavery under the elements of the world. What's Paul saying? He's, he's making a really interesting uh, illustration. Um, basically, back in, in the first century, if you were a middle-income to high-income um, class family, the father would have an inheritance for his son. Um, and at some point in time, the son would grow up and actually receive that inheritance, but it wasn't until the father had a, um, approval of it. It's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a, what's the word? Um, like a trust fund? Like your parents are setting a, um, aside a bunch of money for you, and so at some point in time, you don't have access to that money until your parents actually allow you to receive that money. It's similar in the first century, but it's more so to do with like inheritance um, with, with property. And what Paul is saying is he's making uh, an allusion to the fact that um, the son actually is no different than the, the slave that worked at the house. The, they, in terms of like their identity, they were the exact same because they had, he had no share of the, the inheritance until the right time, was, was, um, until the right time by the father came. Um, Paul, one thing that's interesting that I want to explain quick, uh, Paul uses uh, the term slave and slavery a lot. And so just to kind of clarify some things, uh, slavery is a lot different in the first century than what we think it is. Um, slavery, when we, when we hear the word slavery, we revert to kind of the slavery that was a part of our, our, our nation's history, right? It's more so of a r- racial oppression. Um, but that's not the slavery that Paul's referring to. Um, back in the first century, slavery was actually a very common trade. People would sell themselves into slavery sometimes. Um, but it, it wasn't based on race or ethnicity. Um, it doesn't mean that it was okay. It doesn't mean that slavery was an okay thing. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to differentiate and trying to clarify. If we're trying to think about slavery and making uh, observations of slavery, I want to disentangle our preconceived notions of slavery, the, of what we know, and from the context and the reality of what Paul is writing, if that kind of makes sense, if that, if that kind of gives you some brain space to think about it. Um, so the analogy, again, to kind of remind us is that we at one time were, or Paul is writing to the Galatians, that at one time they were no different than slaves. And he's saying, he uses the term um, under the elements, slavery under the elements, saying slaves to sin, slaves to like the old law. The old law was the thing that pointed out the sin, but it didn't save them. So they were enslaved to working in order to earn a salvation that actually wasn't possible. And so their inheritance wasn't received until Jesus would come and, and the father would uh, set that time. But he's saying up until that point, they were no different than slaves. So the analogy for us today, what does that mean? The same thing applies for us as sinners before we accept Jesus into our hearts. We are slaves to sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, truly I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. It's not that we flirt around with sin or we're casually hanging out with it. Um, it's that we're slaves to it. We're in bondage to it before Jesus. If, sli- if, if sin was a pool of water, 
we're not dipping our toes into checking the temp. We're fully submerged in it with no way to reach the surface. That's what sin is. That's what Paul is saying. Sin overtook our identity and overshadowed our worth. Like I said earlier, slavery was different in the first century, but it was still slavery. Being a slave meant you lost your freedoms and rights as a human being for the sake of serving a master. And so to understand our identity and to kind of what Paul is doing and what I'm going to try and do is setting the scene of to know who we are, we have to know who we were, right? But here's the good news, and this is point two. Point two is that we have received sonship. Let's read verses four and five again. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the good news, right? This is literally what we've been talking about the whole series of Galatians. This is what Galatians is about. This is what the whole Bible is about, right? God sent his son, Jesus, to save us from slavery, from being slaved into sin. This is the gospel. The text says that he was born of a woman. This means that Jesus actually, uh, existing as God, came down from heaven and took on flesh. That's what the Bible talks about. Um, this means that he came to be like us, the, the word Emmanuel, God with us. He took on flesh. He grew up, he learned how to walk and talk and eat and burp. Like, he, he, Jesus probably farted. Like, that's just a real thing. Um, he, he scraped his knees, he did laundry. Like, he existed like you and I did. Um, he became like us. To be born of a woman was to mean to be human and to understand our reality and understand what it means to be human. It also says that he was born under the law. So he was born of a woman, so being human, but he also says he was born under the law. The time and place at which Jesus entered history and became a human was actually really strategic. Uh, Jesus lived his whole life under the Jewish law or under the, the law that was um, before his, his death and resurrection, right? Um, but he never broke a single rule. He never broke a single commandment. He was perfect. He never messed up once. He never sinned a single time. And because of that, because of his claims to be the son of God, he was killed on a cross. He had perfection, and his perfection he took to the cross and traded for our imperfection. That's what he did on the cross. That's the gospel. After being buried in a tomb, he rose back to life, defeating death and sin forever. Why did he do this? Well, verse 5 says it very clearly. To redeem those under the law, so that we might receive son adoption as sons. He did it because we could have sonship. We could be in God's family. That's the whole point of sonship. Jesus came to us so that we might go to him. Now for the ladies in here, don't fret. Uh, the word son actually, when Paul uses the word son in this section, actually refers to both male and female. It's more of a legal term um, in the translation. And also in Galatians 3 in verse 28, if I read that quick, it says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you were all one in Christ Jesus. So anytime Paul says sons or sonship or whatever, um, he's referring to both male and female. They're, we are all one in Christ. That's what he's saying. And we are all brought into his family. We, are, we become sons and daughters of a king. Maybe for some of you, though, family might be um, kind of a touchy subject. Um, maybe for you, you grew up and you didn't have the best of family. Maybe you didn't have one or both of your parents. Um, or maybe your family isn't the typical standard white picket fence family with a golden retriever. If that's you tonight, um, I know families can come with a lot of baggage. And so when I talk about family and being a part of the family of God, your instant reaction or your instant thought is thinking of your own family, your own experience. And if your own experience is broken and it's hard to think of yourself in like a loving family, I'm sorry. Like, 
I have no idea what that's like. Only you do. And I want you to know that, like, I am preparing and, and talking to you as if, like, I, I, I want to know that you're seen. And family is a really difficult thing. And I don't want that to be, I don't want that to be unsaid. Like, what you think of as family in, in terms of your own experience with it, like, that impacts how you see how being a part of God's family or being in God's family, like, that's a big impact. We live in a broken world and families can be some of the most broken parts of our lives, but that is not true in God's family. You see, to be in this family means that God now delights in you. He is proud of you. He's a good father and he loves his children. He's not out to get you. He's not out to scam you. He's not even out to deceive you. Like, he wants you to come home. That's the point of, of being a part of, it, of, of, of the family of God. In Jesus, our new status and our identity is son and daughter. Because of Jesus, God cherishes you. That's like the new reality we have when we, when we place our faith in Jesus. And, main, and our, our, our main point, number three, is that we are now heirs. Okay, let's read uh, verses six and seven. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you have been made an heir. Well, what is an heir? How do I define it? I'm, I'm simply gonna define it as an heir is someone with special privileges and an inheritance, okay? We have special privileges as Christians because God is our father. Paul uses the word Abba, if you, if you notice that. It's in Aramaic. And basically the closest translation that we have to it is dad, it's this term of, of respect, but it's also this, this term of endearment. It's not um, our heavenly father. It's saying like, dad, like, have you ever referred to God as dad before? Like, it's, it's, an, endearing, it's an endearing term, and that's why Paul uses it. Barely anyone uh, back in the day used uh, Abba as an endearing word for God. Um, but Jesus actually, when he, when he says the Lord's Prayer, he uses Abba. Um, people thought it was too relational. They thought God was, you know, too distant. And Jesus flips that on its head and saying, actually, no, we refer to God as our dad. That's what Jesus is saying, and that's what Paul is saying. Um, our relationship with God is not, it's now not angry God, sinful person. It's a loving dad and his kid. Like, that's, that's the new relationship that we have. Our privilege as an heir of God means that we get to talk to him, that we actually get to call him dad. That's crazy. Like, you don't get to call someone dad unless you're the, you're the, the son or the daughter, right? We have complete, undeniable, 24-7 access to speak to the creator of the universe. Why? Because he's our dad. He loves us, and he wants to talk to us. He's always ready to listen to his kids. You are also royalty. If we look in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. We literally have kings and queens sitting in this room right now. That's like a reality. For those of you who are in Christ, you are a king or a queen. You are royalty. Not, not only are we royalty, but we are co-heirs of Christ. If we, if we are sons and daughters of God, who's the king, right? And Jesus is also the son of God. That means we co-heir with him. We, we co-reign with Jesus, which is a crazy reality of, to being co-Jesus. Co That's crazy, right? Um, we're, and, and it even says that in Romans 8. Romans 8, 17 says, if we, we are children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. So if th those are the spe special privileges of an heir, what is our inheritance? 
joining God's family and becoming his kids mean we get an inheritance, and the inheritance is anything that the Father owns, right? If you've ever, if you've ever read the, the creation story in Genesis, it talks about how um, you know, God spent six days to create the earth, he created man, uh, he created Adam and Eve, and he said, um, subdue the earth. And even though God created everything, he has control and power and dominion over everything, he actually gives it to Adam and Eve and saying, I want you to work the ground. I want you to subdue it. I want you to enjoy it. That's what God is doing. And even though sin entered the world, it, it broke that design. It broke the, the initial design for us to enjoy creation. Um, the good news is that Jesus returning actually and dying on the cross is the, the beginning of a new design for us to, again, reclaim our inheritance as heirs to the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes back, he's gonna make all things new. Revelation 5.10 says that you made them a kingdom and priests are God and they will reign on the earth. And even in Daniel, Daniel 7.27 says, um, the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the most high, that's us. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey him. These passages are talking about heaven. As Christians, when we place our faith in Jesus, we, our literal inheritance is the new creation, is literally heaven. That is insane. That's like beyond anything that you can imagine. And not only are we gonna be able to enjoy it as it was intended, but we get to enjoy it everlasting, is what the Bible says, forever. So the main idea, the whole point of this, what Paul is trying to point to, is I would boil it down to two words, that because of Jesus, we are cherished royalty by God. We are sons and daughters that God delights in, and even more so, we are royalty in the kingdom of heaven. Think of this as like princes and princesses, like the king rules over an entire kingdom, but there's so much of the kingdom to rule that he actually delegates it to his, his heirs, his, his princes and princesses. So they have power in the delegation that they're given from the king, but also they get to dine at the king's table. They have a seat at his table, not as subjects, but as heirs, as, as, as princes and princesses. Because of Jesus, we are cherished royalty by God. I think a, I think a common misconception of um, Christianity and trusting in Jesus in general um, can be like we are, we are just forgiven of sins and that's it. Like once we play, place our faith in Jesus, clean slate, I get to try harder next time. Um, I think that's a really low view of Christianity. Praise God that we are forgiven of our sins. That is, that is the essence of the gospel. Um, and if, if you tonight haven't placed your, your faith in Jesus, like you have an opportunity to be forgiven for everything that you've ever done. Praise God for that. But it doesn't stop there. Just because you believed in Jesus, it doesn't mean you get a clean slate, you get to try harder next time. Actually, we get his good works on us forever. We get his righteousness forever. That's way better than a clean slate. That's way better than having to try harder. We receive Jesus's power and his spirit, like it says in, in verse five. We don't live as guilty, but as innocent forever. It goes beyond just a clean slate. As I wrap up, um, I wanna finish our reading in verse eight and nine. So Paul kind of goes into being an heir, um, but then he kind of goes back on it. He says something really interesting in verses eight and nine. He says, but in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now since you know God, or rather have become known by God or becoming Christian, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? 
And this passage points me to a conclusion that there are two people, I believe, in this room right now. One is the unbeliever. We kind of mentioned it earlier, but Paul again states that those who don't know God or aren't known, or yeah, don't know God are enslaved to sin. The other is the believer, right? The other person in this room. And Paul asks a rhetorical question to the Galatians. He's basically saying, why are you going back into slavery? Why, you've been set free. Why are you going back to the things that at one time held you and kept you in bondage? For us Christians today, we often run back to the things that hold us captive. Regardless of where your faith is at today, we have all run from God. There's not a single one of us in this room that hasn't run from him whether you are a Christian or not. Regardless of where your faith is, myself included, we've all run away to try and prove our worth um, in our identity in Christ. Where has it been for you? Like, think about that. If, you, if you're a believer, like, where has it been in your life? Has it been trying to improve yourself in achievements? Has it been school or work, um, financially, even in family? I think for me, personally, sometimes I believe that God is upset with me for not being perfect, for not perfectly following um, his rules, for messing up and for really being a sinner. Like, that's the reality. What's it for you? What's the lie that you believe? Now, here's where the gospel gets sweeter and sweeter every time. See, we could run away 999 times and God would follow us 999 times. He would come and get us back every time. There is no distance too far that he wouldn't go to find us and there is no price too high he wouldn't pay to have us back. Ephesians 2, 4 says that God is rich in mercy. It doesn't say that God is rich in anger. It doesn't say he's rich in power. It doesn't say he's rich in, in wealth or gold. It says he's rich in mercy. If there's one thing that you wanted your dad to be rich in, you would think like, oh, I would love it if my dad was powerful. I'd love it if my dad was rich. Our dad is rich in mercy. Like, that's what he has abundance of. He doesn't run out of mercy. He has so much of it that he's willing to give it time and time and time over again. The price that God did pay was his son. He gave up Jesus to die on a cross in our place so he could have us back. Since the price has been paid, God is free only to love us. This is the good news to both the sinner and the saint for the, the lost and the Christian. He welcomes the lost with open arms and calls the Christian to come back home. So what does this look like? If we were to apply this, if we were to apply to this uh, Galatians 4, the first nine, what, how do we incorporate this into our lives? Well, for those of us who know God as Father, I think we should treat him as such, right? We should pray to him and actually talk to him. The health of a relationship is only good as the communication inside of it, right? If you and your friend don't talk for years, it's like, you probably don't have a healthy relationship. If me and my girlfriend don't talk for a month, it's probably not a great relationship, like just being straightforward. That's the same with God. Like if you don't talk, if you don't talk to, to your father who loves you so much, like I doubt that relationship is healthy, right? You gotta talk to him. Maybe tonight you set a reminder on your phone to pray for five minutes every day, something super simple. Maybe you pray and you call God dad for a try. You could try it. Approach him as father in an endearing term. And be honest with him. Like if God is really who he says he is, if he knows everything already, why would you withhold something from him? He's your dad. He wants to show you love. He wants to show you mercy. He's rich in it. He wants to listen to your heart and he wants to hear it. 
Uh, I think the second thing that we should also do is we should also read his word. This isn't like a Sunday school, like, hey, read your Bible, you have to. Not only should we talk to our father, but we should also listen to what he has to say about us. I think so many times we get caught up in like, oh, I just don't hear God, or I just don't feel God. He has an entire book, 66 of them to be exact, where every single one of them, he's telling you that he loves you. Like, if, if you're not hearing God, I, I encourage you to go home tonight, open your Bible to any point, and just read it out loud, and that is literally the voice of God. We need to read our Bibles because we need to know what he's saying about us and what he's saying to us. We need to pray and read with our Father. For those of you who don't know God, the invitation is pretty simple. It's come home. It's come home. God loves you and he wants you in his family. If you want to talk, I'll be here after the service. There's, um, there's some students that would love to talk to you, even maybe even some staff members. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that. But yeah, God is calling you home. The, the invitation is simple um, and it's all about Jesus. Um, to kind of close my time, um, I'm going to finish the story of Mulan. So in the ending of the movie Mulan, uh, spoiler alert, what ends up happening is uh, she goes to war, right? She fights the bad guy. Um, she ends up defeating the enemy and takes the sword as a trophy and saves the emperor's life in the process. She gets found out that she's a woman in the military, which is like condemnable, like taking someone else's place. But she saves the emperor's life, which is pretty great. So she receives the sword of the, the bad guy, right? And then the emperor, as a token of gratitude, gives uh, Mulan the emperor's crest, which is like the most valuable thing in the kingdom. But the problem is Mulan still has to go home, right? She has to go home to her family. And she's expecting uh, fully to be met with disappointment. Um, as she's going home, her dad's in the garden sitting by a cherry blossom tree and Mulan approaches her dad. And before her dad can get a word out, she kneels before him and she apologizes and she presents the two gifts, um, hoping that there would be some sort of honor or, or way to buy her way back into the family. Mulan's father takes them, looks at the crest and looks at the sword for a couple seconds and he throws them on the ground gets on his knees and embraces his daughter and wipes away her tears. This line, it literally kills me. The greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. Pretty killer line, right? This is the heart of our father though. This is the heart of our father. He's not shaming us. He's not telling us where we, where we messed up. And he's not even asking for us to give any gifts to him, right? God's heart for us is not that he would crush us in expectations to work and earn our worth. He doesn't require gifts and achievements to become part of the family. Our heavenly father wants us to just come home. He loves us because we are his sons and his daughters. Because of Jesus, we are cherished royalty. Um, we have some extra time here. And so I literally just wanted to create space for you guys to talk to your dad. I wanted to give you guys a time and space just by yourself, if you need to go somewhere and get some space, or if you just write in your seat, um, give you a couple minutes to just kind of sit where you're at. And if it's the first time or if it's the thousandth time, um, I'd love it if we, yeah, just prayed individually and, and asked God to just meet with us, to talk to your dad. And then, uh, yeah, take a minute or two, and then I'll close this in prayer and, and we'll worship.
Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross and for forgiving us of our sins, not only that, but also giving us your spirit. Father, we, we love to be home. God, for those who talking to you is really difficult, Lord, I pray that you just make this a gentle, sweet time that you would speak to them. Um, Father, I pray that the word, anything that was said tonight would, uh, that's from you, that's from your word, God, would, would resonate and take root in anything that was not of you, Lord, I pray it would be quickly forgotten. Would you speak to us? You're our Father and you love us. You delight in us. We are royalty because of what you did on that cross, Jesus. This is all about you. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray.